Let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as we continue our study through uh, 2 Corinthians. This morning we'll be looking at the first six verses of chapter 4. Let's hear the word of God, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, But Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would send out to us your light and your truth. Let them lead us, let them guide us to your holy hill, to your dwelling, that we may be in your presence this morning. Help us to know and sense that we are before your throne, that you are speaking to us. May your spirit go forth to give us understanding, to understand these words that you are speaking to us, to apply them to our hearts and shine upon our hearts. Remove the veil of our sin that we might see the glory of you in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. probably heard of William Carey, a missionary to India, the father of modern missions is what he is called. Uh, He went to India in the late 1700s and was a missionary there and then in the early 1800s. At the end of his life, near the end, he was asked by someone how he had accomplished so much in his ministry. And his answer was, I can plod. That's what he said. That's how he accomplished so much. And there are a couple examples we can see of how he was very skilled at his plotting, uh, P L O D. One example is when he got there, he began to obviously learn the language and then preach the gospel. And he kept preaching and preaching for seven years without seeing anyone come to Christ. But finally, after seven years, he saw a convert to Christianity. And then another example of his plotting is that that he was also a Bible translator. That was his main uh, ministry. And he was translating into many different languages that they would speak in that area. And uh, he was working on these translations for 12 years. But one day, a fire was started in his building and completely burned up all his translation work, all the progress that he had made. And what did he do? The next day, he began working again. He got back to work and started translating and eventually was able to finish 
those translations. So he was asked then at the end of his life, and to give you a longer version of the quote, he said, if one were to give me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this, I owe everything. And that image of plodding uh, is like a, an oxen that just continues to plow the field. And you, they might be stepping in a pit of mud. They might be walking on hard ground. But if you've watched them sometimes, they just keep going and going and going, walking in the straight line. That's what it means to plod. And sometimes to be faithful and to be successful, if you want to use that word, in ministry, it means you just keep going. You just keep plotting and being faithful. And that's what Paul is telling us about himself in this passage. His success, his ministry was just a ministry of not giving up. Keep going. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep preaching uh, uh, Keep being a, a godly man, as he'll say in, in other places. He says he, he beats his body to make sure that he is not disqualified. That's his goal, to make it to the end and not be disqualified. To make it to the end and say, I kept preaching Jesus Christ. And Paul's lesson, even though many of us are not uh, pastors or preachers of the gospel, Paul's lesson can still apply to all Christians. God wants us in this passage to continue to persevere in being faithful to follow Christ. Whoever you are, whatever your calling is, you need to persevere as a Christian. And sometimes it's hard. It's hard in the world that we live in. You might be tempted to lose heart, to want to give up. But Paul says, keep plotting, keep going, keep persevering. And you can persevere if you know that the Spirit will work through you. So that's what Paul says here. The, the thing that motivates him to keep going is that the Spirit can help him to be effective in his ministry. So that's what we want to see. And we can break up this passage into two parts, a faithful ministry and a faith-producing ministry, which happens by the Spirit. So let's look first at Paul's faithful ministry. The first thing that he says about his ministry is what we've been talking about, that he perseveres. He perseveres. You see that in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... We do not lose heart. We don't give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep preaching. Now he says there, the first word is therefore. So that's connecting us back to chapter 3. We've been looking at that for a few weeks. Chapter 3 is about how the veil is over people's hearts, and that was symbolized by the veil of Moses. But the Spirit in the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit, removes the veil. So the Spirit can change people. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And the Spirit changes Christians as they grow. As you behold the glory of the Lord, you're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so that's Paul's confidence. Therefore, because of the work of the Spirit, because I'm a minister of the New Covenant... And not of the old covenant, I do not lose heart. But then the next thing he says there is, I have this ministry by the mercy of God. I have this ministry. God has given me this new covenant ministry by his mercy, by a gift that I didn't deserve, or by not getting what I do deserve. That's what mercy means. I don't deserve to have this ministry. If you go look up uh, the best careers, you can search best careers, you will find something like 
information security analyst or nurse practitioner. Of course, everybody has their opinions of what makes a, a good career. Or you can look up what are the best jobs in the world. And you'll find some pretty fun things. You'll find Disney Imagineer, the person who sits around in their office all day thinking about how to have fun at Disney, what kind of rides and themes to have at Disney World. Or uh, Ben and Jerry's flavor guru, the person who sits around thinking of flavors for ice cream and gets to taste ice cream all day. Well, that sounds like a fun job. Well, if you were to search what job is given by the mercy of God, you would find one, the gospel ministry. Only the gospel ministry is described as a job that is given by God's mercy. You could say, the next time you complain about your job, that's exactly what you deserve. Yes, we all deserve jobs that are painful and miserable. And sometimes... A few guys, by the mercy of God, get to preach the gospel. Paul feels this privilege. I have the mercy of God to preach Christ. You can almost hear it in Ephesians 3, verse 8, his great awe and privilege when he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The best job in the world. That I get to think about the unsearchable riches of Christ and I get to talk to other people about it. So, why would I lose heart? Why would I lose heart when I know that I have been given this great privilege? Now, when Paul uses that word, lose heart, He's not just talking about emotions. Uh, he's not just saying he feels down sometimes. But he also means he's not going to give up. That's what losing heart means in this context. Stopping what he's doing or giving up his ministry. He's not going to give up. And he has lots of reasons to give up. We're going to get to those in verses 8 to 10. He's full of afflictions and persecutions. He carries about in his body the death of Jesus. He feels like he's dying all the time. He, I die every day. But I'm not going to give up because I have this ministry by the mercy of God. Now, we can think about that for all of us who are followers of Christ. Not to lose heart, not to give up in following Christ. Maybe you share the gospel with people. Maybe you share the gospel with people in your family that you really love and you really want them to come to faith in Christ and you lose heart. They're not going to ever come to faith. They don't want to hear anything that I have to say. What's the point? Do not give up. Do not lose heart. Or we might look at our church and say, well, it's just kind of discouraging when you look around at our city and look at Albany and you look at all the unbelief and all the sin that goes on all around us. And it seems like there are so few people that truly care about following Christ. It's easy to lose heart. But Paul says, do not lose heart. Do not give up. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep following Christ faithfully. When we look at the news, it's easy to be discouraged. It's easy to be discouraged by what we see happening in the world. But that's why we need to also look at God's word and look more at God's word. So that we realize that no matter what's going on around the world, we still have a ministry by the mercy of God to proclaim Christ. And that the spirit does work through the preaching of the gospel. And so, don't lose heart. Don't give up. So Paul is faithful because he perseveres. And then we see that in verse 2, he's faithful in both his personal life 
and his methods, his way of doing ministry. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul could give up or he could lose heart by doing the things that he mentions in verse 2, that he has renounced. He could just give up and practice disgraceful, underhanded things or cunning and tamper with God's word. And there are many pastors who do these things. They do these things because they've lost heart, because they give up. They give up on their personal godliness following Christ. Oh, all these sacrifices I've made, all this pain that I've gone through, all these ways that people have hurt me. What's the point? I might as well seek after myself. I might as well treat myself and and do some self-care. Or I'll just practice the methods that the people say that they want. I'll start tampering with God's word because what I'm doing isn't working. My church is dying and I'm going to be out of a job. So maybe I'll start changing my methods. So let's look at what Paul says. He renounces. He says, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways, or ref- and I refuse to practice cunning. All three of those words, disgraceful, underhanded, and cunning, they all have to do with the same thing. It's deceit. Uh, it's hypocrisy. It's pretending to do one thing or, or pretending to be one person and doing something else. And so they all have to do with his personal life, his, his godliness. People will pretend to be godly on the outside. But on the inside, they have resorted to secret sins. Maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's infidelity of actual or virtual infidelity. Maybe it's stealing money. Maybe it's just what they call mailing it in, cashing the paycheck. They've lost heart in in ministry, but they're just going to keep going because they want a paycheck, but their heart is not in it. That's deceit. It's underhanded. It's practicing cunning. They're trying to trick the congregation. They're trying to trick the world. So we don't lose heart and we don't give up being godly. We continue to fight against sin. Then he talks about the method. He says, I don't tamper with God's word. The word tamper there uh, means to distort. And we use this word tamper for something like in the court, when people tamper with evidence. Somebody might, I don't know, put blood on a knife or a piece of hair to try to get someone's DNA to connect to the knife, and they try to set up the evidence or they try to distort the evidence in some way. So Paul is talking about distorting the word of of God. You distort the word of God when you lose heart and you say, well, people don't want to hear about hell, so I'll stop preaching about hell. Maybe I'll change my mind about hell. Maybe I'll come up with some idea about how hell isn't really as bad as the Bible makes it sound. Or they say, you know what? Uh, homosexuality is, is not a very popular thing to uh, call a sin. And so I'm just going to kind of change my views on that. And I'll start becoming an affirming pastor. And I'll have an affirming congregation, affirm homosexuality. And that's a way of tampering with God's word. Or they say, you know what? People don't want to sit through a 50-minute sermon of going verse by verse and telling you what the words mean. What people really want 
is how to have their marriage improve and how they can deal with inflation. So I'm going to talk about money. I'm going to talk about marriage and communication and raising your children and how to live a fulfilled life. And all of these things are tampering with the word of God. What we are called to do is to give an open statement of the truth. Say what the Bible says. Don't add to what the Bible says. Don't take away from what the Bible says. Don't focus on your little hobby horses in the Bible, but say what all of the Bible says. Go through all of the Bible, whatever it says, because all over it's going to find different places where it's going to offend this person over here and their beliefs and that person over there. And it's going to offend this part of the culture and that part of the culture. And at different points, at different times, if you preach the whole Bible, it will offend different people in different ways. We're not trying to offend people, but we're just trying to say what the Bible really says. Give an open statement of the truth. And the same can be true for you if you're not, you're not preaching in a pulpit, but you are sharing the gospel with people. You are a parent raising children. Just tell people what the Bible says. And different things will offend different people. Paul says that in his methods, he continues with the open statement of the truth. And so he commends himself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's interesting. He commends himself to everyone, not just the people in the church, but even unbelievers. It's like the character qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, that the elder should have a good reputation even with outsiders. What does that mean? Well, it means that even unbelievers can recognize a sincere preacher of the gospel or that someone is tampering with God's word. And not everybody recognizes it because we know that there are lots of people follow false teachers. But I had, a, I had an agnostic friend who um, he, he told me like, uh, I don't understand. Like, I thought all preachers were like Joel Osteen. And he recognized Osteen, that's a really bad guy. Like, he could tell Osteen is just in it to take people's money. And he's like, wow, this is strange. You're like a different kind of pastor. And I'm like, yeah, actually, yeah, there are a lot of us like that. He's the really bad guy. He's not a real pastor. So even an unbeliever can recognize If someone is using the Bible for their own gain, or if someone is living a disgraceful life, there's a reason that scandals are scandals. They're scandals not just in a church, but in the world. For a pastor to be abusive is a scandal to the world because everybody knows abuse is bad, and it's especially bad. If a pastor is abusive or whatever kind of sin, it's a scandal because people in their conscience, they know right and wrong. And what they want to see in Christians and especially those who preach the gospel, they want to see that this person lives by the Bible and by what they teach. So Paul lives a life he can commend himself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So he perseveres in his ministry. He is faithful in his ministry. And then the last thing we see is that he serves. And you see that down in verse 5. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. What we proclaim is not ourselves. We don't preach about ourselves. It's not to draw attention to ourselves, to try to become celebrities or whatever. Uh, And we don't preach for ourselves. We don't preach for our own gain, 
for riches or whatever it is. We don't preach for ourselves or about ourselves. What we preach is Jesus Christ. And then, he says, that makes us your servants for Jesus' sake. We are your servants, servants of the church. But he says we are your servants for Jesus' sake. In other words, because of Jesus. We are slaves, which is what the word really means. We are slaves of Christ. And the way that we serve Christ is by serving the church. And the way that we serve the church primarily is by feeding the church with the word of God. That is the role of the shepherd. That's the role of the preacher. That's what Paul has been called to do, to preach. He preaches the word of God. The shepherds are to feed the sheep. The wolves feed on the sheep. The wolves proclaim themselves. Shepherds proclaim Christ. And so we serve the church by feeding it with the word of God. John Calvin, you may not know, maybe you do. John Calvin was fired from his church in Geneva. He went there the first time. And after a few years, they did not like all this Reformation stuff, especially the church discipline part. They did not like that he started practicing church discipline. And so they fired him, basically. They kicked him out of Geneva. He went to another town, and he, you know, is a great theologian, so he started to settle down. He started to, he's reading all these books and, and maybe doing some writing and studying, and he started to enjoy the life. And he says, oh, I, I just love the, the quiet life of being a scholar. And I didn't, you know, basically, I didn't have to mess with all the problems with the people in the church in Geneva. He was enjoying his life. But then a few years later, they called him. His friend said, John, Dr. Calvin, we, we need you to come back. We want you to come back to Geneva. And his first response basically was, I'd rather be anywhere than Geneva. I'd rather live anywhere on earth than there. And then they kept persuading him. And so he says, I was enjoying my nice, quiet life. But then he says this, yet, because I know that I am not my own master, I offer my heart as a true sacrifice to the Lord promptly and sincerely. He says, I would love a nice, easy life for myself, but I'm a slave of Christ. I do what Christ tells me to do. I go where he tells me to go. And so, as a servant of Christ, I'm gonna, he moves back to Geneva, begins again the Reformation, and stays there the rest of his life. And God uses him to reform that city. Because he served Christ, he was a servant of the church. That's what Paul says about himself. So Paul was a faithful minister. He did not give up. He had a godly life and he faithfully preached the word and he was a faithful servant of the church. But what do you do when people don't listen? What do you do when people aren't accepting your message as you're preaching the gospel? You're giving your life, you're serving them, and yet people don't seem to respond. What do you do? Does Paul take it personally? Well, maybe I'm just not preaching well enough. Maybe I'm not a good preacher. Or maybe there's something wrong with these people. Maybe I just need to leave. No, Paul realizes that there is something spiritual happening here as he preaches the gospel. There's a spiritual war between Satan and God. And he knows that Satan is no match for God. So that brings us to the second part. This is what he talks about. And I call this faith-producing ministry. Starting in verse 
3 and 4 and then down in verse 6. Now, as we look at those verses, we wanna, I want to break it up by asking a few questions. Who is being blinded? Who is doing the blinding? What are they being blinded from? And then who gives sight to the blind? So who's being blinded? Well, Paul says in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Paul says, here I am, I'm preaching the gospel faithfully, but it seems like my gospel is veiled. People aren't getting it. They don't understand what I'm saying, and they're not really responding. They're not following Christ. Now, Paul realizes that that, is, doesn't, that that happens among some of the people that he preaches to. So who is the gospel veiled to? To those who are perishing. That veil reminds us again of chapter 3, like the veil that went over Moses But this veil is the hardening of the mind. As you're going to see in verse 4, he's blinded the minds of unbelievers. So people's hearts and people's minds are hardened from the gospel. They cannot see and understand the gospel. So who is this? Those who are perishing. Now, who is perishing? Everybody. Everybody. When you come into the world, if you're a human being, you are perishing. The unbelievers that he mentions in verse 4, they are the ones who are perishing. And you, every single one of you, I can confidently say, at one point you were an unbeliever. At one point you were perishing. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All face the judgment of God. So this is not talking about any select group. This is talking about every single person. Every person has a veil over their hearts to keep them from the gospel when they come into the world. So that brings up an issue. How can someone be saved? If everybody's perishing and everybody has this veil, how does what Jesus did about 2,000 years ago in Israel, how does that come to me, to a 60-year-old woman in London, to a 9-year-old boy in India in 1850, to a 19-year-old in Albany? So it's not just that Jesus died. That, that's, he's, he's accomplished redemption for his people. But how are people then saved in their actual life? Because we all agree you have to believe in Christ, repent of your sins to be saved. So how does that happen? How does that happen when there's a veil over all who are perishing. That's the question of these verses. Before we get there, the next question that Paul answers is, who is doing this blinding? So everyone perishing is veiled. And then Paul says at the beginning of verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. The God of this world is doing the blinding. That is Satan. Jesus in John 12, 31 calls Satan the ruler of this world. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, he calls him the prince of the power of the air. And here he calls him the God of this world. And that doesn't mean that Satan is actually a God. The Bible is very clear. There's only one God. Yahweh, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the only God. So why does he call him God? The God of this world. Well, here, the God of this world means he's the ruler of the world. He is in control of the world. Paul uses this word in Philippians 3, verse 19, when he's talking about false teachers, and he says, their God is their belly. Is, Is he saying that those people 
bow down and worship their bellies. That those people truly believe that their bellies are eternal divine beings. No. When he says their God is their belly, he means their belly rules over them. It controls what they do. And so here, when Paul calls Satan the God of this world, all he means is that God has allowed Satan to have control over people in this world. And this God, Satan, his work is to blind people's minds. And so this is a reminder for us that there is a spiritual battle going on. Revelation 12 has this picture of the war between the dragon and Michael and the angels. And and there's a war going on in heaven that gets played out through the events of this world. The things that happen in this world, they happen because Satan's doing stuff and controlling things in this world. And God is also controlling and controlling Satan. And, And everything that happens is a spiritual battle. So we need to remember that. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. We don't fight against individual people. What we're fighting against is ideologies and ideas and philosophies of the world. I was listening recently to an Afghan pastor, a pastor who had to leave Afghanistan last year when the Taliban took over. And So he was telling the whole story, and and the person in the interview said, do you hate the Taliban? And his immediate answer was, no, of course not. And I was was really surprised. I was not expecting such an immediate, passionate answer. No, of course not. I don't hate the Taliban. He said, I love them. I hate their ideas. I love Muslims. I hate Islam. He recognizes. Yes, people are making choices and people are doing things in this world and people are evil and they are responsible for their evil. But evil people do things because the God of this world has blinded them and they are being controlled by him. And our job is to love the individuals and seek to persuade them, knowing that they are blind because of Satan's work. It's easy for us to look at the people even in our society. And we just think, how do they not get, you know, how do they not get that, that you can't just like kill a baby? It's not okay to kill babies. How do they not get that there's a biological difference between a man and a woman? And you can't just have all these surgeries to change that. They just don't get it. And it might be easy for us to start to want to mock them even. To just dismiss them as being fools. And not to remember that they are blinded by the God of of this world. And Paul says, such were some of you. He says in Titus 3, verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray by various passions and pleasures. You too, you and I were just as foolish, just as Blinded by Satan as all the other people that we want to look down on and even mock sometimes. Remember, we were veiled just like they are veiled. Now, the next question is, what are they being blinded from? Well, at the end of verse 4, we see he's blinded them to keep, uh, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of of Christ, who is the image of God. Charles Hodge says, the sun doesn't stop being the sun just because the blind can't see it. And so, 
the glory of God doesn't stop being the glory of God just because people don't see it. God shines his glory through Jesus Christ. It is the light that shines, but unbelievers have a veil from Satan that keeps them from seeing the light. It's the light of the gospel. It's what keeps people from being followers of Jesus, from being Christians. They don't see the light of the gospel. Now notice how Paul describes the gospel. It's the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's not the gospel, he says, of information about Christ that they just don't understand. It's not the gospel of the ethical teachings of Christ. It's not the gospel of the rules that Christ has laid down. It's the gospel of the glory of Christ. They don't see the goodness and how amazing, and they don't see the beauty of Christ. There are many Bible scholars who study the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They know the Bible better than probably any of us do. And yet their minds are blinded from the glory of Christ. There are people who seek to follow the ethics of Jesus and yet do not see his glory. And there are people who try to follow every little rule that they can find that Jesus taught. And yet they are not saved because they don't see the glory of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. Not to know the Bible. Not to follow the rules. But at its core, the fruit of all of those things is to see the glory of Jesus. And yet Satan has pulled down the curtain to keep us from seeing his glory. Now the last question is, who gives this sight? Go down to verse 6. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When Paul does verse 5 and he proclaims Jesus as Lord, the Spirit uses the preaching of the word of Jesus Christ as Lord, the Spirit then uses that to shine in people's hearts. God shines in our hearts. God removes the veil. God is the one who gives light to enable people to see the glory of Jesus. And when they see his glory, they have faith in him. They follow him. You may have heard the term irresistible grace. And some people think irresistible grace means that God drags his elect into heaven kicking and screaming because they can't resist him because he's God and he's going to make them do whatever he says. And so he's going to drag them into heaven whether they like it or not. That's not what verse 6 says. No, verse 6 says that God sovereignly powerfully by his own will because he's God he shines in our hearts and when he shines in our hearts you see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ is beautiful to you Christ is lovely to you he is like in song of Solomon altogether lovely he is the groom that you just fall in love with because you are attracted to him And so it's like a magnet. You fall in love. You are magnetized to come to him. Yeah, it's irresistible. But it's not with you kicking and screaming. It's irresistible because you can't resist his glory and you must be magnetized to him, drawn to him. Why doesn't everybody do that? 
because the God of this world has blinded them from seeing the glory of God. And it is only for God's people, for we don't know why, God in his wisdom, he shines in their hearts and not others, at least not yet. He has not shown in others' hearts, but he has shined in our hearts to get us to see the glory of Christ. Notice also the comparison here with creation in Genesis 1. What it takes to save you and to remove that veil is what it took God to create the world out of nothing. Let light shine out of darkness. There was darkness in Genesis 1. There was no amoeba that was going to slowly evolve into life. It was just God's word that created life out of darkness. And he's saying that's what the heart is like. That's what even those of us who are now saved, our hearts were like that. No condition for life. God didn't say, uh, yeah, you're a little less veiled, so I'll shine in your heart. God didn't say, well, I think you'll do some good in this world, so I'll shine in your heart. No, your heart was all darkness. It was completely lifeless. And the only thing that changed was God's word spoken. Let light shine out of darkness. And so you who believe, you saw the glory of Christ. So maybe someone is here and you do not believe in Christ. Maybe you're sitting here bored out of your mind. And maybe Satan is still veiling your heart. Well, you need to know, first of all, if that is how you feel and that is what you're thinking right now, that your eternal life is at stake. And God desires for you to come to repentance and to know Jesus Christ and to follow him and be rescued from an eternal hell and find eternal life. And so what should you do? You should pray to God and say, God, please help me see. Please show me the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. God, I've heard the sermons. I've read the Bible before, but I just don't get it. God, I want you to reveal Jesus Christ to me in his glory. And maybe even your desire to pray that prayer is the Holy Spirit beginning to shine that light upon you. So pray. Pray and ask God to reveal this glory to you. For those of us who have gone through this experience and God has removed the veil for us, it should create in us great humility. We should be the most humble People on this earth. We should be humble because we know that we are no different from everyone else except God, by grace alone, shone in our hearts to remove the veil. The phrase in the Reformation, soli deo gloria, means glory to God alone. It's become like this cool phrase to throw around, and people get tattoos on it, on, on their bodies, and and they put it on coffee mugs and on hoodies and all this stuff. And it's, it's like this cool phrase that everybody uses. It's not just supposed to be a cool phrase. It's supposed to be how you really feel. You want God to get glory alone because you realize there was nothing you could do to make light shine out of darkness. And so as that song said that we sang just before this, one day we will get to heaven. We will realize just how much we owe. May it create in us more humble hearts to realize how much we owe to our God. And may it make us more thankful. Another hymn that I think is one of the best hymns ever written uh, is a hymn for the Lord's Supper. It's called How Sweet and Awful is the Place. 
awful means full of awe. It doesn't mean terrible. Uh, so it, it goes like this. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter Mother's room? When thousands make the wretched choice and rather starve than come. It was the same love that spread the feast, that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste, and we'd perish in our sin. Who are we? Who am I? Who are you? That God would draw us to himself. All we can say is thank you for showing mercy for such a sinner as I. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your sovereign power to create light out of darkness, to create faith out of hearts that are rebellious to you. Thank you that you have shown in our hearts to give us sight of the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us to bring him glory with our lives. Help us to not lose heart, to persevere, since you have given us this great privilege of knowing Christ and making known the great mysteries and the unsearchable riches that are in Christ. May we not lose heart, Lord, by the power of the Spirit that is at work within us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.